my name is Rebecca Roberts. Welcome to the Into Nigeria podcast. I am a development expert and a researcher in inequality and poverty related policy issues. The this podcast will be a weekly podcast, actually a bi-weekly podcast where we challenge popular opinions on related issues. In it, I'll be speaking to experts, to activists, to my colleagues in the field, and we will be having interesting discussions on issue that relates to Nigeria and these areas as they emerge. Thank you very much for listening and share with your friends. So welcome to episode four. This episode will be building an analytical analytical framework to unpack the social problems, especially focusing on marginalized population in regards to specific SDG goals, for example, in housing, in health and education, and the impact it has on a broader scale on the SDGs for Nigeria. In pulling all of this together, we'll be looking at how avoidable displacement, oppression of the socioeconomic and people's rights of key population will shape Nigeria's chances at making progress in the SDGs. Most importantly, we'll review certain anti-poor people policy in urban cities and how it is affecting the urban poor. And overall, the general population in Nigeria with me here today is an amazing lawyer, Ayo Shoguro. He's first of all, a writer, a lawyer, and a radical human rights activist, passionate. Ayo, you were passionate about the... Okay, one of the things that Ayo and I have in common is that we are extremely resolute and passionate about making Nigeria work for everyone. So Ayo, one of the things that you were... Actually, how I came to know you was the role that you played in the Otodobame eviction and some of the things that you were able to mobilize people and resources to make happen in that um, in that process, what inspires you? Well, I wouldn't take that much credit for anything that happened with Otodobame. I give you the credit. <laughs> I, I just simply try to add my voice to that of actual others who are even on ground while I was away from Nigeria at the time. But, well, I'm glad to have done as the little I could do anyway. But, yes, what inspires me, I think I come from this fundamental understanding of human equality and human dignity this is what motivates most of my interventions in social political life and issues it's a firm belief that all human beings are entitled to equal dignity of their persons and whatever we do in society as a society or by government should reflect this in everything so when people are treated in a way that violates their dignity i always feel compelled to do something about that you you know what was interesting about the otodobame eviction was i mean i'm not a lawyer i don't really have um i don't really have i can't say that i have legal knowledge but what was interesting about that eviction for me was the fact that the government was able to break the law to displace people to take land that belongs to the people 
and some people were killed in the process until date nothing happened why do you think in our society where you know specific class of people are able to do something like that and get away with with doing so and as a lawyer how do you think that activism and even activism in all ramification in terms of protecting human rights and also making governance work for the people how can we pull you know these factors together to ensure that we're able to reduce such occurrences well there are quite a number of issues in nigeria that violate the whole idea of a human rights regime the nigerian constitution is quite clear in its guarantee of certain rights to all citizens of nigeria more importantly nigeria is also a signatory to international covenants on human rights both the international covenants on economic and social rights and international covenant on civil and political rights as well as the african charter on human and people's rights. This all indicates Nigeria's promise as a state to secure, to protect, to promote, and to respect the rights of its citizens. Unfortunately, the reality does not align with these idealistic intentions. Instead, what we have is a situation like this and others where the government consistently violates this rights but i i think the government has been able to keep doing this because people themselves are not as aware as they should be of the rights and even in the cases where they are aware the kind of court system we have and judicial system we have makes it difficult for them to enforce it easily we do not have uh, independent institutions that can actually safeguard the rights of citizens against government so we often have to rely on ngos who can provide that kind of empowerment to the citizens as well as on other individuals who are able to champion the rights of their fellow citizens through social media and other platforms interestingly that just feeds right into my next question so in lagos state the Special Offense Court, otherwise known as Mobile Court, through the nature of my job, I've come in contact with, you know, the urban poor people in Lagos who are constantly oppressed by the government. I have heard from community members who are paralegals that daily Nigerians are harassed, arrested, and tried by the magistrate court in Lagos on a law known as wandering without evidence means of livelihood. Now, I also found out that this law was a colonial law that has been long ab abolished in the 1970s. Ayo, why do you think that it, a magistrate court would keep trying and sending people to jail and forcing some people, you know, deporting people out of the state with a um, with, if they promise that they are not coming back to the state? Why do you think a magistrate court, a legal system, is trying people on a law that no longer exists? How, do you, how is that possible? I mean, in, maybe in that particular case, they are probably using a defunct law. But even... Other than that, there are several other provisions in the criminal code that often enable this kind of judicial or police discretion. We generally call them uh, 
vagrancy laws and um, you find them in different ways it could be loitering it could be being in a place without being able to explain your but source of income what does loitering mean like don't people have a right to public space or to move around like, like you said these are all colonial era laws and they had this loose idea which was to give policemen enough discretion to determine whether to pick somebody up or not but the point again is that they are targeting poor people mm -hmm. they are laws that are used to mark the differences between the life of elite members of society and the lives of ordinary members of society because these are laws that can never be applied against elite members of society in any circumstances they are laws that are often tied to economic ability economic power people who are homeless people who have no capacity to you know take a break at and just relax all day but who have to be working constantly uh, especially women who have uh, who are sex workers you know uh, and all these other kind of activities that require economic uh, or economic activities that require being around in public spaces like hawking like uh, just you know this, this kind of informal sector activities are the targets of all these kind of laws they they try to create an environment that is hostile to the poor and as long as we run a country where we have an elitist mindset in our day-to-day -day understanding of society where people do not respect again the dignity of their fellow citizens but saying that dignity is only something that elite citizens can have then we'll continue to keep seeing these kind of cases in courts because they are also a reflection of the mindset of other Nigerians. We, we need to understand that being poor is not a crime. But unfortunately, in Nigeria, the singular most... The, the worst crime, basically, is poverty. Being poor is a real crime in this country. So, yes... As long as that mindset persists, then cases like this would need to come up. So there's a lot of social re-engineering and reorientation that has to be put in place before these things cease totally. Um, interestingly, um, this is not even a question I was going to ask you, but it just came to my mind that in, in Nigeria, unemployment rates between 2014 till date rose from i think 6.4 to 23.10 presently mm. as at last quarter of 2018 and does it i know um if trading on the street trading is actually illegal according to the laws in lagos state but when you consider the growing unemployment rate does it make sense economic sense for the government to keep attacking people that are earning a daily living considering again the economic state of the country and the inability of jobs both from the private and the public sector well, what are your thoughts on that <laughs> certainly it doesn't uh, make any sense but you know this question will assume that the government is even thinking about these people in the first place or that it's considering their interests as a paramount or a priority but what we have now is a government ideology that even glorifies and enables poverty and that sees poverty as some sort of character building process which is not uh, <laughs> it's, it's insensible really so first and foremost the government creates poverty it enhances poverty and then it victimizes people for being poor. poor so 
you, the poor person can't win really whichever way it's either they are being pushed into a lifestyle that is uncomfortable and undignified and then they are being harassed and persecuted for being in that lifestyle at all interesting so i i and i first met when i was at the center for human rights when i was presenting at the center for human rights at the university of pretoria where he's doing his phd unfortunately for me i think it was on the second or third day i became so ill i was just you know very ill and i i actually passed out and i regained consciousness i found myself in the hospital what i what i found amazing about that is nobody asked me for my passport nobody asked me who i was why i was there i should fill one form or another or even to pay for my medical bill the only way they saw me was this is a sick person that needs to regain consciousness but then i started it made me started thinking about some of the stories and reports i've read about nigeria how personalize how specific groups of people particularly the lgbt community are being victimized and not allowed to have access to the even the small basic health care that exists for the fear that they're going to lose their lives or they're going to be arrested because of the ssmpa law what are your thoughts on your thoughts on this law and what can we do about it i've uh, consistently written and spoken out against the same-sex marriage prohibition act it's um as uh, the UN ambassador at the time to the US called it one of the most draconian laws ever. It's uh, both a diversionary tool against government inadequacies and the government's inefficiencies to take people's mind off actual social problems and create a moral panic around mm. the lives of LGBT persons, as well as uh, an oppressive tool to actually keep LGBT persons within, just under and under the shadows, within the shadows of society, in the fringes and the margins, and prevent them from being visible and living their lives freely. Um, but I think the more insidious part of it again is also that it also serves as a tool for elite control again of the society because the people who this laws is used to target again like the vagrancy laws we spoke about are the poor and already vulnerable LGBT persons. It's used to pick up and profile and pick up uh, unemployed or poor students. Uh, in, LGBT persons, it's used to target lower class LGBT persons, and it's generally used to act as a way of ensuring that those who are below a certain standard of living cannot be as free and as you know fully expressed, they cannot actualize themselves as fully and as freely as those who live above a certain income class. So even though this is something that doesn't often get uh, much attention, there is also that class control issue that the anti-gay laws are used to serve. Uh, so where the police uh, pick up random young men on the streets and they are trying to find a way to extort them, they go through their phones. And wow. once they see things like uh, 
gay porn or messages that suggest same sex relationships, they capitalize on that as a way of extorting or harassing. I've even them. seen cases where non gay men, I, I read in a newspaper, I think it was last year, about a man that was arrested because he braids his hair and the police claims that he looks gay and that was basis to arrest him. Do you think there's something that those kinds of people can start doing, even if it means suing the police, to be able to stop that? Because as a non-LGBT Nigerian, the law also creates room for my life to be at risk, even though I'm not even the targeted. But maybe if, I, if I'm seen to be showing affection to a woman who is my friend and the law assumes that, oh, they are holding hands or they are, why are they holding each other like that? Even, I think the SSMPA puts everybody at risk. But what do you think, how do you think we who are passionate about this issue can advocate for it in the space of the illegality of this law that exists? Uh, yes, you are right. Uh, the SSMPA puts a number of uh, even straight Nigerians mm -hmm. at risk. Uh, first, for example, it does that directly by saying that if you are an ally to the gay community, <laughs> you'll be under arrest. I mean, you'll be, you could be convicted for being an ally. Secondly, if you are not an ally, but you do not, at least you know or you witness and or you participate, and in a sense you condone it, meaning you don't report it, you could be at risk. And then thirdly, the way it uses language is so loose and generic that even as you've mentioned, innocent non-sexual actions can be interpreted as expressions of sexual affection or sexual attraction between same-sex uh, friends or even family members or other relationships. Uh, and so in all these ways, even same-sex, I mean, sorry, straight people are at risk under the law. And in, it, it, it's, um, I suppose it's, I wouldn't say deserved in the circumstances. I would say it's a consequence of being nonchalant about the rights of others, mm. is that your own rights also get trampled mm. in the process. Because um, when straight Nigerians tend to think of this law, they tend to at least up to 80% at the last poll feel like, no, it's not my problem, so they are proven of it. But then they also are capable of being victimized mm. under it. And so when we allow injustice or oppression to come in any form in one way, it doesn't stop there. It tears up in other forms as well. Mm. And that becomes not just the issue of the people we think we are trying to oppress, but the issue of everybody. At some point, the hunter too becomes the hunted. <laughs> That's an interesting way to look at it. So um, on marginalized access, marginalized access is a key driver of inequality. But when you look across cities and sectors in Nigeria, you will see that our state of development or underdevelopment is not accidental. I mean, in the past four years, school enrollment and attendance have decreased significantly, has increased significantly from 10.5 million to 13.2 million in under four years. That's between 2014 and 2018, according to the WHO report. But what is critical to note is that this is happening at the exact same time that forced and avoidable displacement has become rampant, either as a result of forced eviction, you know, in essence, land grabbing in, in urban cities or internal displacement. 
my two questions concerning this is what do you think the government across all levels can do to ensure that shocks such as displacement or homelessness does not create a systemic poverty trap for the key population as is currently happening i mean for example the de-enrollment of children is as a result of something it's not that children are dropping out of school for no reason they are dropping out because they're either homeless or they are displaced and also how can host states so the states that are hosting the idp people in northern nigeria and international community how can they assist the process of re-enrolling children that are already in school just to bridge the gap of this looming disaster in our educational um, system all of these problems are tied and related to one another they're interconnected um the essential problem here is that we do not have a government that does its best to protect the rights of its citizens um the idea of economic and social rights broadly consists of two things or two broad activities one is uh, what you call negative rights and the other is what you call positive rights um, negative rights are rights that the government is generally supposed to refrain mm. from doing or acts sorry that the government is supposed to refrain from doing not to tamper with those rights while mm. positive rights are acts the government is supposed to carry out in order to reinforce or to make sure those rights are actualized and in this case especially when it comes to economic rights positive rights are often the key point the steps the government is taking to ensure that people have homes they have food they have water and more importantly as in this case the children have educational and access to educational facilities easily without um, discomfort and within safe safe environments so I don't think the Nigerian government takes this thing seriously. We, our philosophy towards these issues is more of executive policy decision mm. than a human rights approach. Compare, for example, in the southern in South in South Africa, where the constitutional court tends to interpret or interpret government policy as a matter of whether it's fulfilling the rights mm. of South Africans or it is not. So policy there is not done or it's not meant to be done abstractedly. It's not meant to be done based on what the government feels like it wants to do. Mm. You should be able to point out how what you are doing is in fulfillment of the rights of the citizens under the constitution. Otherwise, you have no basis for what you do. And, but our own government does a lot of things in ways that you cannot tie it. So a government can decide, for example, that it's sending people to Mecca on pilgrimage and then you wonder... <laughs> or Jerusalem or pilgrimage, and then you wonder how does this tie into citizens' rights? Meanwhile, people are homeless or people have no access to education. So, in, so, in sorry to cut you off, in does that mean that in South Africa such things cannot happen? Or if the government, let, let me use an example that we're both familiar with in Otorubame, where there was a court injunction in 2016 preventing the eviction of 30,000 people, does that mean that? In South Africa, the government will not be able to do it just because of that clause. And also, um, it's, it's, it's good to note that in 2018, the waterfront community who sued the state won the case. And the, case, the, the judge deemed it illegal and demanded and requested compensation and resettlement for them and until date the state government have ignored it is that something that can never happen in south africa no i wouldn't say never 
But I would say that um, their constitution is strong enough to have created institutions that are above and independent of the executive government. For example, the court system is independent, very independent of the executive system. And they have uh, institutions that are like ombudsman institutions that are meant to protect the rights of citizens independently again of the government. So this can actually even sue the government on right. behalf of citizens and charge the government, I mean, task the government for to protect these rights. So the constitution, in fact, I believe the constitution creates six ways in the constitution, in the constitution of ensuring that citizens have access to their rights mm. in different ways. So, so it's it's not just the government mm. alone that has the duty of rights or protecting rights. There are other external entities. things, yes, entities separate from the government and institutional that also are charged with that task. Mm. And so it's very difficult to see a situation where the government can unilaterally, by government I mean the executive government mm. now, can unilaterally make a decision and that's the end of it. But that's what we have in Nigeria. And that's why a lot of these problems are not just about this specific policy exactly. or that's where policy they go deep down into our constitutional level challenges how is our constitution uh how keen is it on protecting the rights of citizens right. but you see when you look at our constitution you keep finding this derogation about this no shall not invalidate any act or law done mm. for the purpose of public mm. order public good which are very loose vague terms you know which which make no clear sense mm. and so our government doesn't really have much responsibility constitutionally speaking it's not a constitution that was designed for the benefit of the people. people it was a constitution that was designed for the benefit of the government and those who control the government so yes the problem goes far deeper than just what can the government do in the situation or not but mm. that is the government even obliged or does it, it feel like it is obliged to do anything in the situation so basically our constitution you know gives birth to irresponsible governance which the people can do nothing about okay so further on education um from asu strike to the inability of states to access the ube fund because they do not meet the requirement of counterpart funding issues like this highlights the inability of education across all sectors to, to attract private and independent funding especially for the higher institution i mean ASU will be on strike because they're looking for more gov- more money from the government. But when you look at the standard and even the quality of of the faculties in schools like Unilag and Uniben, why have they been unable to generate their own income? Like, what is causing this problem and why? Well, I don't have uh, any specific expertise <laughs> in the educational sector. But... Um, I think again the the issue is that we are trying to run the system in a way that that system itself is not designed for in the systems that or or should I say in the political environments where this university educational systems evolved, they were not meant to be places of general um what do you call it education they were mm-hmm. meant to be a place for specialized education, mm. either for people who had scholarships mm. and who could uh, pursue education, there were people who had uh, some sort of um, funding or private means mm. in a way that they could fund it. It yeah. wasn't; they were not meant to be, so to say, government-sponsored cheap, cheap places for. Because the idea is that 
um, you do not really need university education to be a well-adjusted member of society. Mm. But um, we have a system in Nigeria where without university education, you cannot be a well-adjusted member of society. Exactly. And so every other system that could, uh, educational system that could have worked that doesn't require the kind of facilities that tertiary institutions require, that's primary schooling and secondary schooling, mm. cannot adequately serve the needs of the average Nigerian students because a graduate of a, sec- a secondary school graduate in Nigeria cannot actually get much in the way of the by way of the job market exactly um even banks would still want a graduate for something as simplistic as stellar duty so 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 it makes so so that's how and and so in that case what we have are universities that are basically glorified secondary schools Mm. yet requiring the facilities that universities require Mm. so what should be simple places of learning which are secondary schools have become useless mm. and the work of secondary schools have been done by universities. Interesting. And since universities have to do work, it means everybody has to go to university. Mm. And if everybody has to go to university, the question is, who is going to fund it? Exactly. Interesting. But it would be unfair either as well to tell people not to go to university without a second uh, backup plan exactly. that would work for them either. So it's really just a whole messed up uh, situation. You can't blame university for wanting to increase costs, but at the same time, you can't deprive people from being getting university education simply mm. because they do not have the means in a society that will not recognize any other kind of education. Mm. So, um, moving forward, the president presented a proposed budget of 8.88 trillion naira for the 2019 budget. In it, 569.07 billion is allocated to the Ministry of Interior, 435.63 billion for Ministry of Defense, 462.24 billion to education, and 315.62 billion for health. It is also important to note that in the same vein, 7.5 billion is budgeted for the operation and maintenance of the presidency and his deputy's office. Now, the economics of scarcity and choice often mandates prioritizing crucial public goods and services. Looking at the current proposed budget, in your opinion, what is Nigeria prioritizing as reflected in this public expenditure proposed for 2019 budget? (laughs) You know, I, I said earlier that we have a constitution that serves the government and the people will control it and not, and not the people. Because this is an example of what I was saying comparing the South African generation that if you cannot adequately show how your expenditure is helping to actualize a particular rights or objective in the constitution, then it has to be struck out. Mm. In a serious society, somebody, for example, could sue the government for this kind of expenditure allocation and say, point to which part of the constitution Allows. This budget, no, this budget is trying to implement. Right. Is tell me which part of the constitution this budget would it would secure? Like mm. what purpose is it serving? Mm. It's we don't have that kind of uh, mandated financial or fiscal policy. Mm. What we have is again a random executive fiscal policy. If the government decides that today is going to spend everything it on on uh, on this, then that's it. 
instead our constitution just gives the government discretion on what to do and how to do it which is a very big assumption to think that they would they will use it for the people yeah so yes obviously it's a budget that is ridiculous when it comes to prioritizing the needs of the people it's clearly a pro establishment pro government budget not a pro people budget okay so um it must be stressed that an efficient state does not necessarily imply equitable redistribution but when you look at the state like lagos kano portacot and even um, and even um ogun state the growing population with the implication has a huge implication for housing and all of these states that i have mentioned have a huge housing deficit yet for a state like lagos for example the state prioritized sinking billions of dollar investment in the Eco Atlantic project or the empty houses that lay around in Ikoe, which nobody is able to afford in a city that has a housing crisis that mostly affects the poor. What is, who are the people, who are the majority of the city? Do you think that um, initiatives by the government, such as the Bridge the Gap housing, the rent to own scheme is a suitable response to the housing deficit in Lagos. If not, what would you recommend? Oh, I, I don't know um, which housing scheme in recent times has actually yielded the kind of results. Most of the times when the government has these schemes, top uh, people buy it and then resell it to... Or the top people buy rent it from the government and then re uh, what's it called release it to others at higher prices or you know there's always this arbitrage that's yeah. always going on with these situations and all of this again is pointed to what i said earlier about our system being pro elite and anti-poor anti-ordinary nigerian so so ideally what you would expect is a situation where the way we register for national id the way we register for bvn this whole idea is implemented into how government provides this kind of services mm. so for example you are identifiable by your by your national id or your voters card mm. or your bbvn let me there are so many ways to identify yours as yeah. nigerians or a driving license you can use it to apply for a direct loan from the government to do this i mean something like that but more importantly you could have a grand estate scheme mm. which at the very least is available to all civil servants mm. under government service so in my opinion what what the government could do is to have a sort of estate scheme that is open and available to all civil servants who can then i mean it makes no sense that somebody is working for the government and has no home mm. if the government cannot provide a home for its own workers then who can it provide a home for so it could be a an incremental process starts with mid-level to junior level i mean to senior level uh civil servants then later cover all junior level civil servants but make sure that everybody's who works for the government has a home 
create estates where they can live where you i mean planned estate so it's not a case of oh i'm coming from this part of town or that part of town to get to the office create an estate close by or nearby of distant but with a bus route or bus service these are simple things that can be planned and then you tie the mortgage to the salary which you pay in the first place mm. because now you don't have to worry about whether they will repay or they will not pay repay or not. you control the salaries of your civil servants mm-hmm. in that way you do two things one you give all a large part of the population accommodation mm. because these civil servants have families, they have relatives, they have this things. And then secondly, you also depopulate uh, other areas which are already highly densely populated because mm. now a large part of the city does not need to be looking for rent in in these localities because there is a planned estate for a large pop- a large number of the population already. So these are just little things. I I don't have. I mean, each state would would uh, have different issues or different ways of working it. Mm. But at least the point is that there are more creative ways of looking at things if indeed these things are designed for ordinary Nigerians. But right. when you have issues like the Eco-Atlantic City being the priority of the government, then you know all these things are about how to maximize profits. The government wants to make money, not to create solve homes, problems. not to solve problems, essentially. All of these things is just uh, entrepreneurial uh adventure for the government not actual <laughs> governance okay so in closing it's election season and in your recent essay on election will not change nigeria it talks about very critical issues on how in nigeria nigeria is designed and driven by political and economic elites who thrive on her dysfunction and the election will not necessarily change Nigeria. Does that mean that we're a hopeless case? And what is the role of political engagement, citizenship, empowerment, and advocacy? Hmm. So my pet issue. Um, I've always explained that the Nigerian political system is a resource mechanism which is intended to gather resources from the ground, literally directed through government revenue channels and then use it to confer economic power on a small elites in the population essentially the nigerian system is a system that is used to oppress the majority for the benefits of the few and this was a system that was designed by the colonial government when they were practicing this thing directly without any pretense and then inherited by our own elites who pretend now that we are in a democracy but really are still practicing the same idea of the colonial government. It is a system that necessitates stationing military troops across the country to ensure that all parts of the territory are firmly under government control because in the resource extraction system you need to have territorial control. And when people agitate that they want secession, self-governance or autonomy or some other sort of uh, ability to control their own affairs, the government doesn't tolerate that because it would reduce the kind of economic power it has over the country. And and so those, that colonial system has been perfected by our military who have even fashioned a constitution for us to cement it in stone and we are all living under that. Every four years we go to the post to select between one or two of the elite factions to select a member of the elite to govern us. It's like the uh, cartoon goes of ships going to vote between a wolf and a hyena. I mean, either way, it's somebody who's going to 
ETO that you are voting for. And that's mm-hmm. what we do every four years. So in such a system, when sheep go together every four years to pick which wolf should eat them, <laughs> can you really call that a democracy? Yes, they may seem to have the power, but the question is no. How do we get, in quotes, one of the sheep into the ballot rather than consistent wolves? And that is how you know which is a true democracy and which is not. And so, no, it's not so much that the system is hopeless. Is that, I mean, the case is hopeless for Nigerians. Is that um, we cannot continue to do the same thing and expect different results. If we have to break away from this cycle of oppression, then we have to think differently. And like I wrote in that particular article uh, for African Arguments, it's that we must have a movement of people which is not geared at taking government or taking power, but at redefining the very meaning of governance. Mm. A lot of Nigerians are so interested in being presidents or being governors or being uh, ministers or whatnot, but they are not so much interested in how do we change this situation so that yes things like government accountability is prioritized the rights of citizens are prioritized the gap between the rich and the poor is uh, diminished by actual provisions in the constitution that talk about these issues so what we need first is a consolidated consensus movement not partisan divisions we don't mm. need to divide ourselves up into parties. What we need is to unite ourselves into a movement mm. asking for constitutional reform and constitutional change. The more people become aware that this system is fraudulent, the more consciousness they have. And with consciousness comes this kind of push that we need that will force whichever government is in existence at the time to say, okay, we've heard you and we want to give you the kind of constitutional reforms that you're asking for. But yes. To do that, we need that awareness first. People must know and understand that the way things are will not be resolved by revoting every four years. It will be resolved by us changing the constitution that we have. Ayo, thank you very much. It was a pleasure speaking to you. And I can't wait to see you when I come to South Africa, since you're running away soon and leaving the country for us. Thank you very much.